Our scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 17. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have long been, been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kim. Well, good morning to you. My name is Stacy Croft. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you guys. Um, and if I have, I'd love to get to know you better. Um, many of you were, have been kind to say, hey, everything okay? Apparently, I guess they didn't um, change the name to David Filson, who preached last week. I was just out of town. Um, and so some of you are like, are you okay? And then a couple of others of you were like, well, we, we don't really care, but, um, but I'm, flat, I'm back for those who do or do not care. Uh, I am uh, the lead pastor here at uh, CPC in town, and uh, it's good to be with y'all and um, typically get to share the messages um, that we are looking at through Ecclesiastes with you. And I was actually last weekend at um, a retreat with a group of pastors and uh, it's the first time I've gotten to really do this in a long time. Uh, first time I actually do this just with a small group, about four other uh, pastors, local pastors in our presbytery here. And we went out on a little uh, kind of lake house retreat kind of thing and just spent some time together, praying, hanging out, laughing, um, just enjoying that time and uh, talking about ministry and talking about life. And it was really good. It was uprooting in a lot of ways. It's something I haven't, again, like I said, I haven't really done anything like that in a small uh, kind of way. I've done some larger kind of things. And one of the things they actually did is uproot a lot of things of ways that I think I have things figured out and don't. Um, and, and a lot of ways that I think that uh, I think I'm okay. Or a lot of ways that I think I've got, um, you know, the handle on thing or see through things. And I really don't. And I'll tell you, as you think about this passage we just read, that is in definition of cynicism, what's going on in that? You know, to be a cynic, to see through things. There are certain events or things in our lives that hit on us and make us view them and say, well, I just don't really trust that. Maybe we've hit some massive disappointment. Maybe something has gone on in our history or our makeup or whatever it may be that, that when we encounter it now, we just kind of go, I don't really have a whole lot of care or trust in that. Could be anything. It could be a, a small thing of where maybe you've had a certain kind of food. I, I know that uh, when my dad was young, he uh, had a lot of watermelon. He ate a lot of watermelon as a kid. He can't eat watermelon now. Every time he sees a watermelon, it makes him sick. He kind of, you know, something like that where it's like every time you encounter it, 
Or it could be something like where, where many of you, as myself, have gone through, with, or my parents went through a, a divorce. And so there are certain ways in which that's, the spokes of that move into parts of life that I just am cynical about and, and, and see distrust and disappointment. And it can move into dismissal and even apathy. And it's easy when you read a passage like this and it ends with, and I hated life. I know it's like, again, <laughs> many of you are here going, man, this is just really encouraging. But you know, one of you said to me walking out not too long ago, and I really appreciated this. They said, you know what? We just looked at how life is a bummer and that actually is really kind of refreshing. And I think it, as you look at this passage, we'll, we'll see that. I was reading a, an article uh, by a, a kind of a philosophy paper, actually, about cynicism. And one of the things was said this. It's interesting. If asked how prevalent cynicism is today, an audience may give mixed signals and different answers. Many people still do not want to own the title of cynic themselves, nor assign it to their neighbors. Perhaps a better question to get at the heart of the issue is to ask instead, what people and institutions do we admire and trust today? In my experience here, our answers become more uniform because there is a popular recognition of a widespread distrust of the system, any system. It'd be an interesting question to ask. It'd be an interesting poll to take is, what, what do you really have distrust in? It could be a person. It could be a marriage. It could be a job. It could be politics. It could be church. It could be one of those things where you've walked in and you've had enough bumps and bruises while you've been in here or in another place where you just kind of go, man, I'm, I'm trying it one more time. But I don't know if I have a whole a lot of hope in it. It could be that. Where's your heart distrust? And I think what I love about Ecclesiastes is it, is it, it is, as it has been, a dangerous book for us. <laughs> Because it doesn't just give you kind of mere verses. It says, here is the personal experience of someone who's gonna sit with you and tell you, I know your cynicism. I've experienced it. Let's actually talk about it instead of avoid it. Let's actually engage it rather than just dismiss it. Just like anything else. It'd be easy to. In fact, the medieval Old Testament theologians used to call Ecclesiastes one of the two most dangerous books to study in the scriptures, the other being Song of Solomon. Because every time you got into this book, it made you go, oh, do I really believe anything at all? So I think as we walk into this, how do we, as I've quoted him before, how do we, like C.S. Lewis said, instead of seeing through everything, he said, to see through everything is a cynic. That's what a cynic is. To be a true cynic, you wanna be a tried and true cynic, you can see through everything. But if you see through everything, isn't that as equal to not seeing at all? How do we not, as he would say, lose our vision? How do we have hope in the midst of cynicism? We're gonna look at two points I think that the, the preacher draws out. One of them you may not see at all in this passage. The first one you will see. The first is just cynicism. How are you cynical in life? The second one is hope. How do you have hope in the midst of it? Hope, and I would actually say hope he pairs with hating, the word hating there, and you'll see why. So cynicism in life, as he begins, he, as we've mentioned, he talks about his personal experience, right? Again, in the midst of this, he says, about himself. 
Then I saw that there's more to gain in wisdom than folly, and there's more to gain in light than in darkness. Again, he talks about setting his heart. Then I said in my heart, verse 15, over and over, as we've seen before, and I want to constantly remind you of this, this book is incredibly refreshing because instead of differently than like maybe a Proverbs where wisdom is, is set out in verse after verse, maybe on topic or subject, you're actually sitting with the author of the book and he's just kind of extrapolating. And you're hearing from his heart and moments that you and I should go, you get me. You're not just giving advice. You're kind of pouring yourself out. This is actually a very vulnerable moment for the preacher, as he calls himself. And many would say it's Solomon. This is a vulnerable point for him to say, I have tried it. I am wise. We've been looking at how he opens himself up. But this is a vulnerable moment where he reaches a point and he says, so I hated life. In all his wisdom, in all the things that he tried, he said, so I hated life. So are we reduced to foolishness? <laughs> Notice that. The wise person has his eyes in his head, which sounds like, well, okay. What is he saying? It's a gift. His eyes receive the light. But the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to them all. The same event meaning that is death. That there's a leveling and the fool, the foolishness here is actually a word kesil. It's actually an interesting word. It's not, there are three different Hebrew words that talk about what it means to be a fool. This one in particular, it means thick or fat. It actually means that someone is dull or obstinate. Someone who hears wisdom and says, well, I don't really want to grow that way. I'm just going to kind of plow my own field. Someone who hears the good thing and just kind of like turns the other way. It's kind of, in some ways, often those who may hear criticism. Here's a good example of that. If you hear criticism, and yet, you can't take it. It's like if you have a good friend, and, and you have some tension because they call something out on you, and because there's disagreement, or because there's truth shown in your face, you separate from them instead of grow closer. That's considered foolishness. The preacher is actually saying, foolishness isn't better than wisdom. Wisdom is better than foolishness. But in terms of its ultimate reliability, in terms of leaning on it, for ultimate meaning and source, it fails. The fool and the wise are leveled. Now, at this point, we've got to be careful because you could slide. It could be one of those slippery slopes. Everybody says, could slide into the fact of, okay, then what's the point? C.S. Lewis picks up on this again at one point, and he talks about the difference between good and evil. And he says, we have an understanding that there is wisdom and there is foolishness. There's good and evil. That they aren't on a level playing field. Especially the fact that we know that there is a difference, that we can actually talk about it. We know this even instinctually when we encounter something, even if it's as small as someone cutting in front of us in a line. This event happened to me not too long ago. This person thought I cut in line, and man, they turned on me. I mean, they let me have it. And I sat there in bewilderment with my family, and we were kind of like, we, we, I promised didn't mean cut in line. You know, I mean, it's those kind of things. There's a justice. We know it instinctually. There's something right and wrong, that there's not an even, even playing field for wisdom and folly. But yet, what is the deal? That, what is the preacher trying to get at? He's trying to say, the wisdom I've set up and to create a system for myself 
to rely cannot beat death. It cannot beat the ultimate evil, death. That the fool and the wise die. We both have to face death. So how do we do it? Couldn't that just move us, though, into being a cynic? Couldn't that make you cynical just about life? Couldn't that make you kind of go, eh, whatever? And don't we, though? I mean, aren't we so desensitized by whatever it is on TV or whatever we see in the news? Isn't that why there's such a polar view of what's going, what we see on Instagram and what we see on the news? We see all happy, shiny, happy. Everything's great. Instagram is the perfect, like, look how great I'm doing, Right? And then we turn on the news and it's like, everything's horrible. You know, it's like, what do we do? How do we balance ourselves out? And it's constantly that. But the the preacher's trying to get you to hold both. He's trying to get you to say, it's not one or the other in the way that we live. It's not that black and white. It is gray. It's interesting, even the cynics themselves, the, the original cynic came from the fourth century. And a cynic was somebody who, in some ways, they called them wandering doctors of the soul. They were wandering around. It came from this language where it was a stripping of, the bare, of, of everything but the bare necessities. And so a cynic in public would actually be somebody who's a little off-putting. They wouldn't follow social norms. There were people that, that really said, what does it matter? They were so disappointed with the systems and structures around them that they just kind of lived however they wanted. And so the preacher is kind of teetering on the edge of that, right? You kind of feel that a little bit. You kind of feel a little bit of of what's going on. It's interesting, I was reading this paper by Wade Bradshaw about this. Listen to what he even says about what a cynic essentially did. He said, a a cynic was um, considered all beyond the necessities uh, to be toifos, which is a word combining the notions of mist and fog, illusion and arrogance. Their simple life was lived as a con- conscious attempt to find tranquility through detachment. It would be easy, do you hear that, mist and fog, it would be easy to look at this book and to say, this is the book of cynics. Because Solomon, or the preacher in other words, is saying, It's all mist. It's all vapor, right? We've heard that language, vapor. But he's not trying to drive us to the end of everything and not even God himself. He's trying to drive us to the end of ourselves and what we put our sources in. He's trying to get us to look at the systems that we have created in order for us to try and make meaning in this life. The systems that can't hold up wisdom, that we use to try and get things from both God and others in order that we can feel like we're somebody, like we're something. And I love what Wade Bradshaw said. He said there are two points in his article when he said that about the necessities. The two points of cynicism that really deal with our hearts that are there that we need to look at. One is the experience of disappointment and the second is the infection of apathy. He says the experience of disappointment. He says there's been a huge breakdown in our relationships. In all the family, political systems, all the families, when we encounter disappointment in any sort of system, we begin to either grow cynical in it or try and wall it up. And we move on to a new system. And we create that in order to live in it, to make 
our life better. And yes, wisdom can make your life better, but it doesn't mean life will be better. We look at wisdom and we look at things in our systems and our lives to try and make our lives work perfectly, and they cannot. Just because we have wisdom in the way that we parent doesn't mean our children aren't gonna be in trouble. Just because we have wisdom in the way that we handle mercy in this city doesn't mean it's gonna defeat all injustice. Just because we have wisdom in the way that we approach our work doesn't mean we're gonna find ourselves with a shoulder just slumped because we're exhausted because we cannot keep up. It does not produce health always in the system. We want it to, and that's what the preacher's doing. He's saying, what are the ways that you think that you can beat the system? What are the structures that you've set up for yourself, the ways that you've made that you think wisdom will give you ultimate salvation? Because we tend to find that if it doesn't, we move it and go to the next thing. What is the next book? What is the next church? What is the next system that you're trying to put into your operating system that you think will make it function just right? And the preacher's saying, there is not one. And it would be easy for us to slide into cynicism to think, well, then nothing's good. That's not what he says. Wisdom is still better than foolishness. But he does say, try it and you will find yourself hating life. You will find yourself feeling lonely, bored. Isn't that what is behind our loneliness and boredom is our cynicism about, yeah, we, we try and get together once in a while or we, we've tried to connect. And our boredom moving, our, our FOMO, fear of missing out, right? We all have it. We all have a fear of missing out that, that permeates our culture. And the reason we do is because we don't believe that, that we are okay in the, in the moment. If we miss out on something, what, what did I miss? What part of me is wrong that I'm not going, am I gonna have people not think I'm good enough, cool enough, better enough to be a part? What am I missing out that fits a part of that system that I think I have to have? The preacher is trying to get to the bottom of that in our hearts. Because the thing is, is we want the right thing instead of Jesus. We want the right way of doing things instead of God himself. It's so easy, and I'm just gonna pick on myself and our church for a moment. It would be so easy for us. And how easy is this? And this is not like calling it, this is how we do, especially in a place where there's so many churches on every corner, how easy it is to pick on certain churches, the churches over there, this church, other churches, the way he preaches, the way they preach, the way they do music, the way, the system. We can have opinions and that is fine. But how much do we depend on all that for our worship? There's so many gospel-believing people in the city that are actually speaking the truth of the gospel. We're not, we didn't start Christ Presbyterian Church in town because we're the only ones that can do it. Or that we have this building, which is awesome. I'm so grateful for it. So grateful for it. 
And yet, if we sit in the fact that we have all that, we're missing the point. Guys, if we do confession, if we go through the steps of the bulletin you have in front of you every week, and I believe in liturgy like anybody. I love it. I set it up that way. But it is so easy for us, just as it was anybody in the New and Old Testament, to say, you know what? I'm walking through the steps of worship, but does it do anything to what's going on in my heart? Or is it just another system that seems to make everything else better because I can gloss it over with this Christian montage rather than actually having relationship with Jesus? Are we just doing the right thing? Or do we have a right relationship with God himself? What system do you depend on? Because what he says I think is interesting. He says he hates life because he hit the end of it. Because, and I, what I love Wade Bradshaw said here, it moves not just from disappointment, but to apathy, the infection of apathy. Where have you begun to dismiss things around you because you think you have the right system? And I think this is the place, I will be honest, I think this is the place where we can really find ourselves lonely and people hating the church for it. How easy is it, as he even describes in one place, cynicism claims to occupy the high moral ground and to proclaim the ugly ugly truth about the world. And this is the old form of dishonesty in the church. In reaction to this, one falseness, however, there is another, newer one becoming visible. I know that many congregations where any manifestation of joy or happiness are assumed to be fake or unreal. This permeates into even the very small cultural norms that we have. The ways that maybe, and maybe you're new this morning, and I want to welcome you here, and I hope that you experience a real warmth of relationship in this room, because how easy is it in our culture, in our society, especially in our church culture, and churched cities across our country, where somebody comes up to you and you how are you doing? I'm great. Everything's great. Everything's fine. All the time. It's always good. And it's not like you're going to come up and say, how are things going? And like the preacher, I mean, it may be, can you imagine walking up to Solomon at this point and going, how are you doing? He's like, it's, I hate life, you know? Like to the same degree, you're like, great. Hey, glad you came, you know? Like you kind of back off. That, that doesn't mean that you go to that degree either, but it does in, in enter into those places in us where like, are we being real? Like, you know, when I talk about things and I've mentioned this and some of you mentioned this to me, this isn't just me, I'm the one standing up there who has to talk about this in my own heart and share. But it is so easy when we've talked, many of you with me, about what it really means to be lonely is how real are we? Because this, I wanna say, the loneliness and being real is attached to cynicism. The more I read about it, it's the fact that uh, who could really connect to me? Who really, really is real? Yeah, I go to that church. I've walked in this church a hundred times. And I'm so, if you've come this morning and you're trying to gut it out at CPC in town, I hope that you're not. But I hope you encounter people here that are like real. And I know there are a bunch, I know so many of you. And so many of you are. And I hope you reach to each other and show a difference 
in the fact that, that, that that's what everybody sees. People look at us gathering in these churches and they say, is it real? Is there really a purpose or a dismissal? Because they also, many people look, and I hope you're here, maybe this morning, maybe you're trying on Christianity again, maybe you're burned or bored or cynical of the church. And it is so often that Christians are the ones that are the ones who dismiss. Are we quick to dismiss in our cynicism? Instead of living in hope, we live in a cynicism where we dismiss a person or a group of people or a place or a candidate or whatever it is. It's okay to have opinions We should have opinions, but how much does our cynicism as Christians overwhelm and make it look like we have the right system and not just the right relationship? It can really, really do a switcheroo and people can see it. You can be around it. Is there a reality to it? Here's what I love about where he goes with this in this passage. He kind of talks about these systems and they're all leveled by death, but He goes, why have I been so wise? How the wise dies just like the fool. And then verse 17, so I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and is striving after the wind. Do you know what he's doing there? He's actually connecting hope and hating. See, it'd be easy for us to be cynical about life and dismiss and not just looking at, but you know what he's getting in here? He's getting about Hope and hating. The language of hate here isn't what we think it is. It's disappointment, but not despair. He's not hating God. He's hating what he's done with his systems in life. He's seeing what's going on. As one commentator said it, I love how this commentator said it. He said, a true relationship should have this kind of language with God. The the, the preacher is actually speaking this to God, that he's talking to God, that this is the language that we should have. This is the reality of our hearts. Here's, here's, a, here's a diagnostic of that. What he's trying to get at here is how many times do we, when we pray, if we pray, that we only pray either God, thank you, 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 or blessing, 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 and then we speak about God in those terms. Or we swing or we're those kind of people that only pray when we need something from him. Please change this, please share this, please. You see what he's saying? There's a holding of both. Hating life, it's an expression of the preacher's relationship with God. That there's a language here where the preacher's saying, I'm holding both hope and hatred of this life, a reality. The actually word hate, there's an interesting passage in the New Testament where Jesus says to the people following him, unless you actually hate your mother and brothers and fathers and so, he starts saying this about the family and he says, to come follow me. And you're like, whoa, whoa, this sounds really intense, Jesus. But he's not saying actual hate, it's a Hebrew rhetoric of saying hate is a language of comparison. It's saying, unless you actually realize that life in putting this meaning into these systems cannot hold it, you will not have hope. 
The only way to hold hope and hatred is to know in comparison. He is talking about a comparison that hope, and biblical hope is very different. This is why you see the word hope come up over and over and over, especially in the New Testament. Because the word hope for us is, I didn't study for my exams, I really hope I do well. Or I hope I get that promotion. Or I hope it doesn't rain when we leave so I can go eat on the porch at Satco. You know, you can see where my heart is. Okay, so hope moves into this wish fulfillment. But biblical hope is different. It's interesting. The word hope in the Bible is actually set on a fixed point. It means that there's an event, there's something that happened, and it doesn't move or sway on our feeling or circumstances. Biblical hope isn't tethered to temperament. You know, oftentimes that is what we want. It's very different. It doesn't allow us to wake up in the morning and go, gosh, I hope I have a good day. That's not biblical hope. That may be our emotional hope, and that's something different. Biblical hope is different. It's set outside of our temperament because that way it doesn't, and isn't it how easy for us, I've done this for ages, I've seen this in my own heart. There have been books written by major theologians on how our depression, how even seasonal affective disorder can change the way we view biblical hope. But this is why hope is set outside. It's staked in a ground that cannot move. It's not set on the course of our temperament day by day. It's, it's a hope that's, even as some have said, it's subversive. When we meet this kind of hope in this person, we can be cynical about that hope. And it doesn't just mean somebody's like happy-go-lucky. It means that there's hope, that there's actually a steadiness. Someone who can kind of look at things as real, but know that there's, there's hope of change in it. There's, this isn't the way it's gonna be. It's not tied to our circumstances. We can tie hope to our circumstances. Look, imagine, think about Solomon here. Solomon asked for wisdom. His circumstances change overwhelmingly. In 1 Kings when, 3, when, when uh, Solomon actually asks, God says, I'll give you whatever you want instead of asking for gold or land or anything he wanted, all the things that showed power and, and possession, he asked for wisdom And then God says, I'll give you everything from that. And he does. You can read the accounts of Solomon receiving everything. And what's fascinating is all of his circumstances tend to just work perfectly. They seem to just look beautifully almost when you read them in the pages. People are coming to him asking him questions. His life seems smooth. Even his name means peace. Peace was brought to the kingdom through Solomon. The temple's built. It's this beautiful, lavish thing with gold. Every circumstance seems to be just in line. His system is right. And yet, what is he saying here? So I hated life. Because how easy it is in our circumstances to put hope, to think, man, if this works out, that's not biblical hope. Biblical hope means it's set, it's fixed, it's there. It cannot change. The hope that we need and that we have in hating life is the one that he's saying in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of it, that there's a living hope. There's a difference here in what he's saying. The preacher's stepping back to say, I hated life 
because I was brought to the end of myself. He says what? The same event, that we have to look at the same event. Yes, we should pursue wisdom, but it is not what we can put our whole self on or we will become cynical. And can we be honest? As honest as the preacher about it, to need to say, to need to look in the places and say, I hated life. I hate it because of what it brought. You know, this table before you is ultimately the most beautiful picture of this. Because in 1 Peter, it's actually said this. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection. You know, one of the things that I always thought was interesting is in discussions about Christianity or other religions is why not, if it's true, if, if he's just being cynical, why Christianity? Like, what, what is so big about this? And as there is very much a level playing field on many wise things, if we trust in the system of what we're doing, there really isn't a difference there's a lot of morality that connects to so many other religions. But the greatest thing he's saying here is beyond that. He says, so I hated life. He said, there's more than that. It has to be on that. He's putting that down. He's saying the difference in Christianity and any other thing is that there's a living hope. Not a hope on circumstances, not on your affections. A living hope that is set. A physical, tangible hope that you actually get to taste and touch as a reminder of that living hope. To come to this table means you're tasting and smelling a living hope that is still alive today, that Jesus didn't just come once and come in physical flesh to deal with that. He came to deal with the grievousness of our hearts. He came to experience what it means to hate life in order that he would give us the hope that is set before us. Because how would we have it? if we just depend on ourselves to come to this table. As you prepare yourself to come to this table, prepare your heart that, if you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I'm so cynical about what any of this means. Thank you for being here. With integrity, entertain that. Look at that hatred of life and look at the systems you trust in it. And I would encourage you to come to faith in Christ, but don't come to this table yet. Stay either in your seat or come forward and fold your hands to receive prayer. Don't take this table if you're sitting there thinking, I've got this down. This table isn't meaning that we got this down. We have the right system. It means we have a right relationship with someone who does. That's in Christ. He's the living hope who grieved as we grieve, hated life as we did so he could bring us joy and hope in it. With that, let's stand together.